congregation, with the Lord's help tonight, we will consider John chapter 6. It's a very beautiful, well-known portion of Scripture. Many sermons, many books have been written on the individual verses. It's a chapter that highlights, on the one hand, God's willingness to save. Verses 37 and 38 in particular are well-known verses that highlight God's willingness, His promise to save all those that come to Him. It's also a chapter that highlights God's sovereignty. It's clear from this chapter that it's not by our own works or our own might that we are saved. But as you read this chapter, and we read a long portion of it, I think one of the things that stands out so clearly is how Jesus is pleading with these people to believe on him, to come to him. And he's pleading with you when you read this chapter and you hear his word, come, eat this bread of life. He pleads with them again and again and again. He tells them, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. What you have from your fathers, your tradition of the Jews, that's not eternal life. They're dead. I am the bread of life. And he says it again and again and again. He has pleads with them to come, to believe. And yet at the same time, what's so clear in this chapter is how the people reject him again and again and again. Almost every time, Jesus makes that statement, I am the bread of life. You must come. You must eat. You must believe. The people come up with some other objection, don't they? They come up with some other question, ask for another sign. And at the end of it all, they murmur, and most of them leave. Well, here we are in church again tonight, a week before the Lord's Supper. And here the Lord again, through his word, offers that great salvation unto each one of us. And the question is, what are we going to do? Or is that really the question? Is the question, what are we going to do? Or is the question, what is God going to do? Our text verse highlights some of that tension. Our text verse is, is chapter 6, verse 45. We'll read these words. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So our theme tonight, with the Lord's help, will be God teaches his people. God teaches his people. And there's just three points. The need for God's teaching, the nature of God's teaching, and the certainty of God's teaching. God teaches his people the need, the nature, and the certainty of God's teaching. The need is really highlighted by the context. Our text verse is verse 45, but the need is highlighted in the verses preceding that. And so I hope to go through some of those verses with you just to highlight the great need we have of God's teaching. In any one of these verses, you could, have, you could make many sermons about 
This chapter is full of verses that are very deep and very rich. I think John Bunyan wrote a whole book just on, on verse 37. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, we may be going through some of these verses a little bit quickly. But if we focus on this idea that it shows us our great need for the Lord's teaching, it does give us a lens through which to view it. But at the very beginning of the chapter, we see two miracles. In verses 1 to 14, we see Jesus feed the 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes. And then immediately after that, the people, instead of bowing in repentance and faith at this clear revelation of, of that Jesus is God, they determined, as we read in the, in the first few verses, to make him king by force. It's verse 15 of our, chap- of our chapter. When Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again unto a mountain, himself alone. They weren't swayed by the miracle. That wasn't enough to draw them unto Christ as their savior. They just wanted to make him a king. And then after that, from verses uh, 21, sorry, 15 to 21, we see the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. He walks to his disciples on the water. He sends his disciples across the sea to Capernaum. He goes up into a mountain to pray. And his disciples are in darkness and there's a great storm. And Jesus walks on the water to them. And in one of the parallel accounts, we read about how Peter walks to Jesus on the water. So we see those two miracles. And then that's at the end of verse 21, Jesus has come to the other side. And in verse 22 is where we began reading. The people that he had uh, fed the day before with that miracle of five loaves and two fishes, they're searching for him. Again, not because they see him as their savior, not because they loved him as their Lord, but because they want, well, Jesus says it himself in verse, uh, and early on, I think it's in verse 24, sorry, 26. Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. The people were seeking him for improper motives, weren't they? And that is a problem, even in our own circles, isn't it? We hear about the benefits of God's salvation. We hear about the possibility of heaven, of peace, of the peace and the strength to live and to die. And we want those benefits. We want those things. Nobody wants to go to hell. Nobody wants to suffer punishment. Everybody who believes in heaven wants to go to heaven. But that's not enough, is it? That's not enough. We can't just take the benefits, the good things that God offers and leave the rest of him aside. Often said that if we're going to receive him as our priest, our savior, we must also have him as our king, as our Lord, who leads us. And so the people are seeking him for wrong motives. He, Jesus, and Jesus explains that for them. He says it very bluntly to them. Your motives are earthly. You seek me just because you are filled. But labor not for the meat that perishes. He warns them. He doesn't just thrust them away, which he could have done already at this point. He could have done that. After he'd shown them a miracle and then to have them try to make him king by force, he could have thrust them away at that point, but he doesn't. In verse 27, he says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Labor. 
He calls them, labor for that meat. Well, what's their response? What's, they ask a question. They don't believe. They just ask a question. He says, they say in verse 28, what shall we do then that we might work the works of God? That word for work is the same one as that word for labor in the verse prior. Right, so Jesus says, work for the meat that doesn't perish. And they say, well, what is that work? What's the work that we must do to obtain that meat that doesn't perish? What is it? And Jesus answered in verse 29, and he said, this is the work, that labor of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Is there anything more plain? How many times have you heard this? It's easy for us to cast stones at the Jews, but how many times have you sat in church, even you young children, how many times have you heard this? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need. You need to believe. And yet how often do we push him away? We push him away. We push him away. We find an excuse. We ask another question. We find some other reason not to believe. And even children of God, after seeing the Lord's mighty works, after seeing his miracles just like this, how often when we come into a dark place do we not believe? We don't take him at his word, do we? We try, we try to find some excuse and we, pu- we push him away. But Jesus says so plainly, this is the work of God. This is the labor that you must perform. Believe, just believe. It's not really even labor. Believing is really leaving everything aside and trusting in him. It's such a plain statement of the gospel. But what do the Jews say? What do the Jews say now to this plain statement? Look at verse 30. They ask him a question. Well, what sign are you going to show us? What sign are you going to show us? What sign showest thou us that we may see and believe thee? It's not enough for them just to hear the word of God. But the word of God is the power of God unto salvation, isn't it? The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we won't take the Lord Jesus at his word, we won't take him at all. And the Jews aren't taking him here at his word. They say, what sign will you show us? What sign? And they point to their fathers in the, in the wilderness. They say, our fathers, they ate manna in the desert. The Lord gave them manna. And that's how they knew they could trust Moses. And that's how they knew they could trust God to lead them in the desert. He gave them a sign. Show us a sign. How often do we ask for a sign? How, we, how often do we ask God, show us some token of your favor. Show us some evidence of your love to me and then I can believe. If you, Lord, if you would just show me that I was one of your elect children, then I would believe. But I can't believe unless I see a sign. We're the same way. We're the same way. Well, Jesus corrects them. And notice he doesn't push them away. Once again, he corrects them lovingly. And here he is in verse 32, correcting them and correcting us. Jesus says, verily, verily, truly, literally, it's amen, amen. He's saying this is true. Your Moses, Moses did not give you. He gave you not that bread from heaven. But my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. That manna wasn't the true bread of heaven. That manna has come and it's gone. Jesus says that uh, a little bit later when he talks about how your fathers are dead after eating that bread. Moses didn't give that to you. My father gave you the bread from heaven. 
And then Jesus said in verse 33, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto this world. He says it again. You need to look for something else. You can't look for a sign. He leads them back to himself, really. Even though they're, through their sin they're looking for a sign, he uses even their sin and he redirects them back to himself because look at their response in verse 34. They say, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And that's not an unnatural response, as I said. Nobody wants to go to hell. Hell is a scary thought, isn't it, children? We don't want to go to hell. And when you hear about living bread, then it's, it's only our natural, normal response to say, Lord, give us this bread. We don't want to go to hell. We want to live forever. And then Jesus uses that. And he says so plainly in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He will never thirst. It's such a plain call. Such a plain call. Now Jesus really identifies their unbelief. Even though as he stands here pleading with them, come to me, come to me, believe on me. And then he identifies the problem here really in verse 36 or the reality of their unbelief. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. Notice how direct he is. Sometimes we shy away from that, don't we? We shy away from being direct and from reprimanding and from, from really telling people that you're living in sin. You're living in darkness. You're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't shy away from it. He says it very plainly. You're not believing. But then he gives them that glorious promise in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Can there be a greater invitation? All that the Father giveth to me shall come, and him that cometh, I will in no wise cast out. He won't do it. He will not cast you away. And why? Why is he so certain? How can he say it so certainly? Because that, that's what we see in verse 38. That is the will of his Father. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. And of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me. He says it again, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. It's really... I know it sounds too easy maybe or too simple. But that's just another excuse, isn't it? That is eternal life right here. Everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. That's a reality. That's a reality. And what do the Jews do? They reject him again. Verse 41, they murmured at him. Could there be any more of a plain call, a plea to these people? Believe on me. And yet the Jews, the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they say, is this not Jesus? We know Jesus. He's the son of Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth. We know his mother. His brothers are over there. They don't believe him. They don't believe him. This highlights the need for something more, doesn't it? We shouldn't need more than this. We shouldn't need more 
than God's promises. But we do. Because we're no better than them. As I said already, and I'm sure there's not a child of God who would disagree with me here, that the Lord so many times called us and we rejected him. And maybe some of us are still rejecting him now. He presents us with these great promises. The one that comes, I will not cast out. And yet we don't believe. We don't believe, or at least we didn't. And some of us, I'm sure, still don't. The promises are so certain. What need we have for God's help, my friends? To go to hell with promises like these ringing in your ears. It's unthinkable. To whom much is given, much will be required. How we need him. Because if we reject this, and we will by nature reject it, you're going to spend an eternity in hell asking yourself, why? Why didn't I believe him? Why didn't I look? Just like those Jews. Remember that story, children in Numbers, where the, where the serpents came along, and they, the venomous serpents, and they bit the, 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 the heels or the legs of the Israelites, and the Israelites lay there dying. And God told Moses, lift up a pole with a brazen serpent on it. Whoever looks will live. That's all it took, just to look at it. People didn't look. People didn't look. Why? What kind of foolishness is this? What more do you need other than God saying, believe and you will be saved. Look on me and you will be saved. And yet we turn away again and again and again. Clearly, more is needed. We need more. It highlights our depravity, if nothing else, doesn't it? When we fell in the garden, we destroyed ourselves. We became sons of the devil. Jesus said it very plainly later. You are sons of your father, the devil. We cannot believe on our own. We need something more. We need to be taught of God. Jesus confirms it in verse 44 and 45. After he sees them grumble and complain and reject him again, he says, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. We need this teaching of God, my friends. I know we like to shy away from this doctrine of God's sovereignty. But if you read it in the context in which it is written, God isn't telling you this to discourage you. He's telling you this to identify your problem. You are so twisted and so dark, you are unable to believe on me. You must be taught of God. We need this teaching of God. Filling our heads with great doctrines isn't enough. Can there be a doctrine greater than what we just read? Can there be anything more beautiful than this eternal life offered to sinners freely? It's not enough just to learn great doctrines. It's not enough to learn from a great teacher. You've been blessed with a faithful pastor. You've been blessed with pulpit supply all the time you were vacant. And yet, the greatest of teachers cannot save you. You know this. But think about this. The Jews had Jesus teaching them. Jesus himself was telling them, 
believe this is what you need. And it wasn't enough just to have a great teacher. Witnessing the power of God isn't enough. The Jews had just seen miracles. They'd literally been fed from five loaves and two fishes. Thousands of them had been fed. That's no ordinary work. This is the work of God. Yet it's not enough. It's not enough, is it? They turned away. They rejected him again. We must be taught of God. We must be taught of God. What does that mean then, to be taught of God, you might ask? What is it to be taught of God? Jesus is here speaking to the Jews, teaching them doctrines. Isn't that being taught of God? Well, that's the second point. That's our second point, the nature of God's teaching. What is it? We clearly need it. We clearly need it, but what is it? What is it to be taught of God? Well, at one level, it's true, in one sense, the Jews here were taught of God in, a, in an outward sense. They heard his word, Jesus spoke to them, just like you right now. You're hearing God's word at one level. Everybody's hearing it with their ear. And unless you're distracted or sleeping, it's coming into your ear and going into your mind. And you're being taught in one sense. But that's clearly then not what Jesus means. Because the Jews were being taught of God, and yet he says you must be taught of God. It means something more, doesn't it? Well, if you look at the verse 45b, you get some more light. They shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So in the first place, being taught of God is learning of the Father. It's learning of the Father. It's not the work of a natural man. Now Jesus is pointing away from himself and he's pointing to his Father. The one who has been taught of God learns of the Father. And that's really where the work of salvation starts, isn't it? It started from all eternity with the Father who sent his Son in time to purchase that salvation. But it starts with the Father. So being taught of God means being taught by God the Father. But what else do we see in verse 45b? Every man that hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Those who are taught of God learn of the Father and they are drawn to Christ. So the result of this teaching is being drawn to Christ. And so in that sense, we can understand that it's really just a further explanation of what we read in verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. That word draw for you younger children just means to be led, to be drawn by an inward power, to be drawn really irresistibly to Jesus Christ. So very simply, very simply, we learn of the Father and we are drawn to, or as Jesus says elsewhere, we believe in Jesus Christ. To be taught of God means to be drawn by the Father, given the, to Jesus Christ. And very simply, that just means given faith in Christ. John, throughout his gospel, and even in this chapter, he uses many synonyms for the word faith. He talks about eating Christ, seeing Christ, hearing Christ, believing on Christ, coming to Christ. But if you study these words and in their context, it's really clear that all these synonyms just point to faith in Christ. Just points to faith in Christ. We must believe. We must believe God's word in our heart. And when we do believe, that is being taught of God. 
We must believe that God is who he says he is and he will do what he has promised to do. That's really one of the beautiful definitions of faith in the Bible. It's from Hebrews 11. It says in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You must believe that God is, that he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he's promised to do. He will reward those who diligently seek him. That's being taught of God, being given faith, if we're going to put it in its simplest form. It's to be given faith in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 4, verse 2, we see it again in another, in another way. The author of Hebrews says this, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That's the unbelieving Jews. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and them that heard it. That's being taught of God, being given faith. Faith in whom or in what? Very specifically, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the living bread who's presenting this gospel to the Jews and to you today faith in Jesus Christ. This distinction between being taught of God and merely hearing about God with our ears is highlighted. We read it. We read it. And maybe children, you can already know what I'm thinking of. But we see a distinction at the end of our chapter, don't we? After Jesus goes through this whole conversation with the Jews, Most of them left him, didn't they? Most of them said, this isn't hard saying. Who can hear it? See it in verse 60. This isn't hard saying. This is too difficult for us. This is more than we can handle. Who 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 can receive this? Who can hear it? They left. From that time, many of his disciples didn't walk with him anymore. And Jesus asked, though, his other 12 disciples, the remaining disciples, Will ye also go away? Will ye also leave me? Maybe that's the question that we ought to go home with as you think about the Lord's Supper next week. Here you are presented with these gospel promises again. And the Lord asks, Will ye also go away? Will you turn away from me again? Will you deny me before men and before my Father again? If you're not taught of God, it's just a fact you will. Pray, my friends, pray for faith. Pray that God will break that hard heart of yours that refuses to believe. Because we see what happens in Peter, who was taught of God. What does Peter say? Look at verse 67 and 68. Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter Peter was taught of God. That's faith. To whom else shall we go? We have nowhere else to go. You can hear almost the the desperation in Peter's voice, the, the resignation. Lord, there is nowhere else to go. The world has nothing to offer. My friends have nothing to offer. The Jews, the greatest religions, have nothing to offer. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. That's the distinction. My friends and children, if you, if you want to look for that example, that's, that's really the clearest example in this chapter of what it means to be taught of God, what it means to believe in God. When everybody else leaves him, Peter and those who have faith in God go to him. They believe him. They trust him. They believe him with their very lives. 
in Matthew, Peter makes a statement to the same effect. And Jesus confirms that, that Peter is taught of God. That is what it looks like. Jesus says, says this in, in Matthew 16. When Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That's what it means to be taught of God. And it again does get back to the need for it. How much we need that. Even Simon Peter, who made all these beautiful confessions, he himself had to be taught of God, as we just read. And we can't spend too long on this, but if you notice, it says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets. They shall be all taught of God. That comes from Isaiah. This, what Jesus says here comes from Isaiah 54. It's a beautiful chapter, and I would really encourage each of you to study it at home this week. It's a beautiful chapter, but it, it confirms this meaning of what it means to be taught of God. If, if you want to read more about it, you can look at it. But in that chapter, very briefly, Isaiah is describing the foreseen, the future restoration of God's people. Isaiah, in the first half of his book, described, the first 40 chapters, describes the judgment that's coming upon Israel. And then starting in verse 40, he starts to prophesy about the restoration. He starts to to point to what's coming. And and it's such a beautiful chapter because it begins begins with this. It begins with sing. Thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. If you look in Isaiah 54, the people see see that their seed is cut off. Their hope is gone is what they're getting at. Their hope is gone. Isaiah knows they're going to be in captivity. They're going to be in, the, in, in Babylon. It's going to be horrible. And they're going to see their children growing up in this heathen culture as captives. And they're, they're despairing. But God corrects them through Isaiah. He tells them to sing because thy maker is thine husband. And he goes on to tell them that what he has planned for them is greater than they can imagine. It's greater than anything that they can see in this Gentile land. And what is his promise? Well, he describes the promised restoration in that chapter. But in verse 13, part of that promise is the words that form our text in John 6. Part of that promised restoration you find in Isaiah 54, 13. It says this, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. That's what Jesus is quoting. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. And don't get hung up on this distinction between all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and they shall be all taught. Remember, Isaiah is speaking to the bride. He's speaking to to Zion, the church. And so when he says all the children of the church, he's talking about the members of the church. All thy children, that means all, all the children of the church, all the members of the church shall be taught of God and great shall be their peace. So this teaching of God, as you read in Isaiah 54, is really part and and parcel of their restoration. And it leads to great peace. What is peace other than reconciliation with God? Where do we find peace outside of Jesus Christ? We read in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's peace. There's where you'll find peace. And that's what it means to be taught of God, to have faith in Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God. 
And that really, that really is what Jesus is trying to get these people to see. And yet, Jesus is also identifying the, the problem here. You don't believe, but you need to believe. You need and you can't believe. And therefore, the Father will teach, will teach you. He will teach all the children, all his people. He will do it. It's his work. I don't think there's another chapter that's clear on sovereignty than John 6. You really can't read this chapter and walk away without having to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Why is Jesus raising this now? Let's be clear about this. I don't want to leave this point untouched. Why is Jesus telling this now? I've hinted at it a few times already. There's few doctrines more hated around the world than the sovereignty of God. Why is Jesus raising this now? Is he encouraging fatalism? Is he encouraging despair? Is he encouraging some kind of uh, passivity where you do nothing? No. Hopefully by the time you've gone through the chapter and you don't take these verses out of context, you see that Jesus is identifying our problem. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. You must be taught of God. Jesus isn't saying that so they don't come. Look through the chapter. How many times does he say labor for the meat which perishes? Believe on him. Come to him. Look through the Gospel of John. There are dozens and dozens of times where Jesus commands each person to repent and to believe. Jesus isn't encouraging passivity. He's identifying our problem. And he's giving us a solution to it. Children of God, perhaps you can, you can relate to this. How many times have you found yourself wishing you had stronger faith? And maybe if you remember when you were first converted, how often did you pray to God for faith? You know you should believe. Every one of us knows that great command in Acts. Repent and believe. God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. We know that. We know what he's commanded. And how many times... How many times, children of God, do you fall short in a day? How many times do you find, I don't have the faith I need? I want to grow, as Newton said, in faith and love and every grace. And I pray to God that he will give me that. And yet I don't have it. I don't find it within myself. And in a week of preparation, I'm sure as you look inside, you will find that I don't have the faith I should have. I don't have the love to God that I need. I don't see these fruits bubbling up within myself, these fruits of the Spirit. I don't have what I need. And if all we were left with is this command to repent and to believe, it would be hopeless because we'd look inside and realize I don't have what I need. But here God tells us. Here he identifies our problem. You need to be taught of God. And he at the same time offers us that solution. Come, come to the Lord in prayer. Ask for the faith that you don't have. Ask for the increase of the Spirit. Ask for the fruits of the Spirit. Ask for the love of God to fill your heart. Ask for that faith. And trust that God will give it. See, that's really the beauty of God's sovereignty, isn't it? It allows us to replace, it allows us to replace, I must, with God will. It allows us to set aside all our shortcomings. 
It doesn't allow us to set aside them. It allows us to repent, to confess them, and to look to God, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so in this week of self-preparation, as you look inside, as you, not just this week, but throughout your life, as you look inside, as you, as you struggle with that lack of faith, don't be surprised when you find yourself dry and barren. Don't be surprised when you find yourself cold. Nothing good dwells inside of you. Nothing. Read Romans 7 if you want to see one of the great saints of God, Paul, struggling with what he finds inside. But thank God for verses like John 6, 45, where he tells us what the problem is and points us back to himself. Everything we need is in him. What a wonderful promise that is. What a wonderful doctrine that is. This is hope. Hope isn't in here. Hope isn't in what you can do. Hope is in him. What glory is found in this doctrine of God's sovereignty? What certainty? As you struggle, my friends, if there are any are struggling here with whether to come to the Lord's Supper next week, don't think you're going to find grounds to come in here. Pray to God. Ask him for the teaching that you need. And remember what Jesus said. Remember what he said. Those that come to me, I will not cast out. Come in prayer. Come in in the name of the Lord Jesus. He will not turn you away. He won't do it. He won't do it. Pray. Pray. For we must be taught of God. We must be taught of God. But the beauty, the real beauty of the text is that it doesn't say we must be taught of God. Does it? Look again. It says they shall be taught of God. They shall be taught of God. And that's really our third point, the certainty of God's teaching. They shall be taught of God. Doesn't that provide such relief? Doesn't that provide such hope when you look forward? Again, it's not that I must, although I do have responsibility for what I do. I am responsible We will be judged according to our works. And yet, if you know anything of your own heart, you know that when you're judged, if you're judged only by your own, according to your own works, you can never be saved. But they shall be taught of God. God will teach his people. He has promised to do it. So confess your depravity, my friends, and look to God for your salvation, and you shall be taught of God. You shall be. He has promised it. You know, there's six ways. I love, I love this, pointing this out. There are six ways of saying no in Greek. There's six ways of negating a sentence in Greek. And they're all varying levels of intensity. The strongest way of saying no is found in verse 37. All that the Father give to me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You see how both those doctrines are put together there? All that the Father giveth to me will come. It's a certainty. You shall be taught of God. And those that come, I will not cast out. It will not happen. Jesus is trying to emphasize the utter certainty of this fact. All that the Father giveth shall come. I hope you can see the beauty in that. I hope you can see the hope there. Now you have hope. If it was up to you, To save yourself, there is no hope. But the sovereignty of God, this electing love, this everlasting love 
gives you hope. It gives you every reason to strive because now there's a way of salvation. Now there's hope for time and for eternity because you shall be taught of God. Don't reject it, my friends. Don't turn away from this. Don't somehow blame God for unwillingness. If there's anything clear in this passage is that that God is willing and that we are not. So take that depravity and bring it to him and trust that you shall be taught of God. You will not be cast away. What a comfort that is for those who don't have faith and who are struggling to find faith and for those who have weak faith. God will do the teaching. He is the author and finisher. And note too that his teaching isn't only certain, but it is certainly effective. Every man therefore, at the end of verse 45, 45b, it says, every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. You cannot be taught of God and remain aloof or apart from God. If you are taught of God, you will come to Christ. You will come. He will reveal himself to you as your Savior. And he will cause the fruits of those spirits to, spirit to grow. The teaching of God is effective. That Greek word comes is something very special that denotes an ongoing process. It's not just, it's not just that once you are taught of God, you'll come once. But it's comes. The one who is taught of God comes to Christ again and again and again. Think of what Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And children, you know, if you think about bread being your food, you cannot just eat once and live, can you? But you need bread every day. Every day you need more bread. The same thing is true in spiritual life. Those who are taught of God will come once and again and again and again. And the more they come, the more they see their need to come all the more. It's like the hymn says, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. Those who come will come again and again. And what a blessing it is that he allows us to come again and again, isn't it? When you think about the Lord's Supper next week, isn't that such a blessing to be able to come again and eat that bread and drink that wine and have communion with their Lord? But it's not just that communion. It's in his house. It's in his word. Whenever you read his word, you have the opportunity to have communion with God, to come to him in his word and in prayer and to hear his voice. It's ongoing teaching and it's ongoing coming. What a hope that gives us for the future. It's confirmed, that certainty. That certainty is confirmed throughout the chapter, isn't it? If you look at verse 39, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all those which he hath given me I should lose nothing. And again, this is the will of him that sent me, in verse 40, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It will happen. It will happen. It's certain. And in verse 47, a couple verses after our text, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. What could be more certain than, than that? It's not that you will someday have everlasting life. He gives it now. When you believe in him here, you already have everlasting life. I think that's John 17, verse 3. This is life eternal, that they believe on thee 
and in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You don't need to doubt it, my friends. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you already have eternal life. God's teaching is certain. That's what we also see later in John 17. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. If you want to find more certainty, look in John 17. And you, you see Jesus praying for his people. Have you ever considered that? Jesus praying for his people. The Father will not turn him away. It's his son. And in John 17, you hear him praying for his people. And we know elsewhere in the gospel, from the, from the epistles, that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he prays daily, continually, literally, for his people. All that they need, the Father will give because of the work of the Son. You will, they shall, they shall be taught of God. So whoever you are, whatever your state, I hope you can see the beauty in this verse and in this doctrine. I hope you can see the love of God as he, even in his own darkness here. Never forget when Jesus uttered these words, when Jesus spoke this, when he gave us this message of hope, he was suffering greater than humans have ever suffered. He was in his own darkness, suffering for the very unbelief of these Jews, suffering for the unbelief of every person. Every per- the sins of the whole world, he says, were taken upon him. And yet in that darkness, in that darkness, he reveals his love, doesn't he? In his darkness, he gives hope. He gives light. I am the light of life, he says in John 8. I hope you can see the beauty in that. They shall be taught of God. And perhaps that's the question, as I said earlier, to take home with you this week, this week of self-examination. It's not really, have I seen enough of my sin? Or have I seen enough of Christ? Or have I seen, do I love Christ enough? Do I have enough faith? That's really not the question. The question is, have I been taught of God? Have I been taught of God? And if you wonder whether you've been taught of God, the answer is whether you've come to Christ and whether you do come to Christ. If you don't see any glory in Christ, if you don't see, if you, if you don't see the light that has shined out of darkness, which has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, then that table isn't for you next week. For no one who hasn't seen that glory can really come, can they? But if you have, or if you do, may you come singing next week and every day of your life, singing what we read in Psalm 71, verse 16, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. What a Savior. What a God who wraps us in his own righteousness. They shall be taught of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we... 
lift up our needs to thee and we lift up our thanks to thee. Lord, we thank thee for this time and thy word. We pray that thy word will not return unto thee void. We pray that thy word, Lord, will bear fruit as thou hast promised it will bear. However imperfectly delivered, however imperfectly received, Lord, will thou cause it to bear fruit. It is thy word and thy promises are certain. Lord, will thou teach each one of us what we must know. Lord, will thou draw each one of us to thy son. And will thou forgive us, Lord? We are so sinful. We are so evil and so fallen. Even our best thoughts, even our very tears, Lord, are stained with sin. Lord, forgive us. Cause us to hear thy voice. And cause those who are dead to hear thy voice and to live. Lord, will thou work. Thou bless thine own word. Bring us all back in safety to our church or our churches next week. Lord, will thou pour out thy spirit upon these people. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.